Last week, Ivan Blazin was dressed in a suit and preached for 50 minutes. It's nice to be able to stand and relax and preach for as long as you want. And I'm very comfortable today. So, Ivan said this, and I hope I've paraphrased him accurately. The world doesn't have any other avenue through which to see Jesus than through you, his people. Through you, people of love, the world may come to see and understand and respond to a God of love. That's what he said. I agree with that so intensely. I agree with that a great deal. The trouble is, it's really hard work to be loving, particularly in this day and age when our world wants us to be cruel and excessive and obsessed with ourselves. I want to open uh, Scripture today to the book of Philippians. Uh, The passage there will shape the rest of the talk. Uh, in the context of becoming people uh, who are loving, or at least trying to be loving. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That passage has always grabbed me. Now, I'm not much of a Bible exegete. I I hope you recognize how difficult it is to take passages from the pulpit and preach and be accurate to the passages. Our pastors are tremendous. It's a a very huge skill and difficult. Uh, I didn't even look up the Greek word here for work. Um... And I didn't read about the Philippian church, and so I'm not giving you some deeply embedded and informed uh, exegesis here. I'm sorry. I'm reading this text, just the plain words from my lens, and you know everything I look through is through the lens of ethics and morality. That's what I do and who I am. And this text strikes me. I'm a convert to Christianity and to this church. And you folks told me, Salvation is free. You come to God, you present yourself, there it is. You get salvation. You don't have to work toward it. You don't have to be a certain person. You don't have to this. You don't have to that. It's free. And here I'm reading Paul, who I'm supposed to understand to be an authority on these matters, says that we have to work out our own salvation. So this this passage grabs me, always has grabbed me. Well, as I've wrestled with this text through the years, I understand he's talking about salvation, but it breaks down into two doctrines, old-time camp-meeting Adventist doctrines, okay? Justification and sanctification. Yeah. (laughs) I wish you could have seen the face on a few folks here. (laughs) Justification and sanctification. Oh, he's not going to talk about that. Please. I see your eyes glazing over and your minds moving toward lunch. (laughs) 
hang in there with me. Some of you will be deeply disappointed because I don't do that difficult, richly theological, incredibly complex work, and others of you will be pleased because it's so simplified. Well, justification means simply this. It describes the good reasons God saves people. Justification. The good reasons that God saves people. That might be Christ, right? Um, Sanctification is simply this. It describes the effect of that salvation in the lives of those people who have been saved by God. Okay? Simple. That's it. And now we'll spend a little time unpacking what that uh, second part, sanctification, describing the effect of salvation in the lives of people who are saved. Set aside any question about whether I'm talking about whether you're saved or not. That's not the point. We're talking now about the effect of that salvation in your life. What sort of people ought we to be? Um, it seems to me, and this is a fundamental premise, seems to me that people who have accepted God's grace and Jesus as their Savior, that it should have some real effect in their life. That salvation ought to affect their personal character. It ought to affect their habits, their routines, uh, the way they interact with others, and so on. There ought to be. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of things to measure and say, okay, we can tell whether so-and-so has been saved if this, this, and this. But it, just a fundamental premise seems like it ought to make a difference. Okay? Um, a consistent pattern. And, and don't miss the point here. Look at verse 13 in the passage, right? Paul is not setting us up for failure. He knows what human nature is like. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I like that part too. We won't talk about that part today. Um, for God is at work in you both to will and to work. God is at work in you, helping you be open to the idea that he's now going to affect who you are. That's the hard work of salvation, opening ourselves to God's presence. It's not the hard work of me to be a loving person. I'm not talking about that. It's not the hard work for me to be a responsible person. The hard work for me is simply opening myself to God's presence. That's hard work. I'm not inclined that way. That's the hard work of salvation that Paul is encouraging us to here. It seems to me it ought to make us, that is it, justification ought to make us easier to live with. Is that so hard to to understand and accept? It ought to make us easier to work with at work. Even if the other person is a jerk, and someone should chew him out. It ought to make us decent students up at MGA, right? It doesn't matter the age here. It ought to make us decent to each other. It's just fundamental. Sometimes I think Seventh-day Adventists are particularly uh, contrarian. Do you know what a contrarian is? doesn't matter what you say, the, the person takes the opposite point, right? I see couples get into this oftentimes. It's sort of a long downward spiral. No matter what she says, I take the opposite position. 
It could be meaningless. Irre- you know, has no meaning to the conversation or the end of the day or the, the way we're going. But as long as I can disagree, you bet I'm going to be there, right? And Adventists are particularly good at that. Of all the Protestants, and what's the nature of Protestantism? To disagree. We make better Protestants than most, right? Well, amen. There we go. Thank you, Isaac. Very good. Uh, I want to I f- uh, focus on three particular specific examples, okay? I'm going to focus on altruism, temperance, and peaceableness. Is that a word? We can put ness on just about anything, can't we? In other words, I want to say the hard work of sanctification, the hard work of salvation is to open ourselves to allow God to make us into people who are peace-loving, who are altruistic, and who are temperate. Okay? That's the gist of things. Um, Going back, however, and putting in the context of old-time Adventist camp-meeting sermons, justification and sanctification, particularly sanctification, uh, we mixed and matched very quickly with the idea of being peculiar people. Right? Any of you remember those old sermons? Adventists were supposed to be peculiar people because when God calls us out and into a particular place, we become peculiar, particularly in the world in which we live. And in those days, what were the things that made us peculiar? Anybody? The Sabbath, diet, clothes, jingles and jangles. Right? What made us peculiar? Those things. California Adventists, you know, we had lots of jangles, lots of nice clothes. Can't much tell us difference from, we don't look particularly different than anyone else. What is it that makes us peculiar today? And what I want to say is that being people who are altruistic makes us peculiar people. Being people who are peaceable in a world that wants to make us fight makes us peculiar people. And people who are temperate in a world that wants us to be excessive are really peculiar people. Well, let's look specifically at uh, altruism and egoism, okay? I teach uh, a class at Loma Linda, The Ethical Issues in Public Health. And in the spring quarter, every quarter, I get the Masters of Business Administration students, okay? And one of the things that I press them about is this idea of altruism and egoism. Altruism, just so you're with me here, altruism means what? That we must be primarily concerned with the good of the other over our own concerns. It's primarily other-regarding. You take the other person and you don't balance it with yourself. You put it on top of your own needs. There's no question about that. Altruism pushes that the needs of the other override yours. In a world that wants us to be incredibly self-centered, altruism is hard to come by. And these students who are aggressive graduate students wanting to become hospital and, and, and healthcare business administrators, 
altruism is something that I'm not sure they, they fully grasp. So I, I linger with them. One of the ways that I linger with them is to press them on the issue. I, and I asked this the first day of class. Is health care a service or is health care a business? Now, mind you, it's not really a question you can simply answer because, in fact, it's both. But what I understand is that they're coming to the question, that is, what is health care, from the business side. It's a business in which and through which, and particularly this degree, they hope to make a lot of money. And I want them to understand that the profession of health care, the tradition of health care, the ethos of health care is altruistic. It's the needs of the patient overriding your present needs. Healthcare people have always struggled with this. How to balance that? Because they do need to make a living and so on. But it's incredibly difficult for me to get across to them sometimes this idea of altruism because our world doesn't set us in the direction of altruism. Our world sets us in the direction of egoism, self, right? We can see this in uh, the lives of uh, families and couples today. I'm aware of, of a couple, of a family who struggled with this in their marital relations. The, the man uh, had uh, been going through a struggle, a midlife crisis, if you will. Self-identity was difficult, didn't know who he was, fell in love with someone else, got a wife and children, but, you know, he's now in love with this other person. The wife being incredibly forgiving and open and so on and so forth, talking honestly with them, and they communicated very well, trying to figure out how to proceed. And the man says to the wife, what do I, what do, I do with, this, with this desire to find out who I am and to love this other person? What do I do with that? And the wife said fairly simply, you leave it alone. You set it aside, and you focus yourself on me and the kids. It seems a pretty simple thing to understand. And, and he wrestled with that again further, and he said, you're asking me to sacrifice myself for you and the kids. Some of the people who have been here and have been married 43 years or more are snickering now because this couple, this guy, never got that. The wife says to the husband, I, I don't like the way you just put that out, sacrifice yourself to the, for us and the kids because I don't see it that way. But if that's the way you understand it and that's the way you want to put it, then the answer is yes, I expect you to sacrifice yourself for me and the kids, to your prior commitments. But the wrestle with that, and, and he couldn't. He left. He couldn't because his primary focus was on self. It seems to me that if we're going to be affected by God's salvation, then we need to be altruistic people in a world that wants us to be obsessed with ourselves. That makes us into peculiar people, doesn't it? Really peculiar. Well, um, it's not easy. The balance here is uh, particularly difficult. But I think 
Uh, what helps oftentimes is the community. And I thank you, Pastor Chris, for mentioning that Hillary was impressed and, and, and blessed by the community because the community can help people uh, find themselves in a safe context if we'll stay close and intimately connected with the broader community. Our society, again, doesn't want us to develop places of tight community. Our society pushes us into that rugged individualism. If you're a real man, you'll do this because real men are are rugged individualists, see? So our society is not helping with this. The hard work of sanctification is making a habit out of an opening ourselves to God so that God can come in and with us and to us and help us to become people who are altruistic, who are focused on others. Secondly, uh, temperance. This is one of my favorites. I wrote a dissertation on temperance. Um, Oftentimes they say people write dissertations on things that are troublesome for them. (laughs) Uh, Mom and Dad, uh, when when I was a child... Uh, whenever people would greet the, uh, us as a family, they'd, they'd reach down and, and squeeze my cheek and my brother's cheek, and they oh, your boys are so husky. Oh, that's very nice. You know, uh, you understand husky is for overweight, right? Uh, and they were trying to be nice and everything. Well, we enjoyed eating. I still do. Temperance is something that doesn't come easy. And mind you, I'm going to step on some toes here. If I haven't already, I'll continue to do that. Uh, they're my toes as well. Okay, I'm going to hit food and housing and vehicles, uh, some other things. Um, What about food? Temperance in relation to food. Our society pushes us to be incredibly excessive. An ad from the Farmer uh, Boys restaurant, right? Stater Brothers Farmer Boys. I always keep that clear. Farmer Boys. When you come eat here, They said, bring either a wheelbarrow or a hand cart. Because when you're done and you're completely full, you'll need a wheelbarrow to take the leftovers out to your vehicle. We don't want you to hurt your back, says the ad. And we're supposed to be drawn there because they're going to feed us excessive amounts of food that we'll be hard-pressed to get to our vehicle. That's attractive to us. Driving by a a Burger King on Redlands Boulevard, there's a big monstrous picture in the window with a, it's a Whopper, right? Uh, About four patties in the thing. And the caption says, go big or go home. If you come in and order, order some wimpy junior Whopper and we ask you, do you want to supersize it? And you say, no, we don't want your business. We only want big eaters, right? Go big or go home. Great message, right? Here in Southern California, Carl's Jr.'s sells more bacon guacamole burgers than any other kind to us healthy Californians. I don't remember numbers very well, but I was looking at this burger, and I think it's either 80 or 160 grams of fat. I guess that's a lot, judging by your gasps, right? I don't know a lot about this stuff, but that's not good, okay? In a world that's excessive, God's calling us to be temperate people. That's peculiar 
What about our vehicles, right? Now, mind you, I drive a truck that's got four doors. It's an F-150. Yeah. I want an F-350, thank you very much, right? But really, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 dollar vehicles? What an obscene amount of excess, right? And, and it's easy for me to say and think because I don't have the money to afford those kind of cars. If I did, I might not say it. Things get relative, don't they? But still, in a world where $40,000 can feed four or five families for several years, it seems a little bit excessive for us. Being people who are temperate in a world that wants us to be excessive is one of the ways God works his salvation in us. Our homes. We often live in homes where two or three families could live in there easily, comfortably. Uh, How about time? Are you busy? Can you spell busy? (laughs) Sometimes uh, ridiculously busy. Hmm? God wants us to be responsible for the time. It's not easy. Often others press upon our time. We're forced to engage in, in further uh, work hours when we probably would not. But sometimes we're excessive uh, in our time. God wants us to step back and be responsible, temperate. Finally, on the environment. Now, those of you who know me know I'm no, I'm no Greenpeace cheerleader. Okay, um, I harvest fish in Alaska. I don't plant them. Uh, we just harvested 160,000 pounds of fish this summer, my family and I. Right? Um, the environment needs to be cared for. Our underlying theology in Adventism has been God put this stuff here for us to use. We'll use it as we wish. Right. And uh, if we extort it, exploit it, and wipe it out, so be it. God must have seen that in the grand plan uh, uh, plan of things, and so there you go. Right? No big deal. Besides, uh, the world's going to be destroyed anytime anyway. (laughs) See? Uh, Let's get behind that thinking. Let's be peculiar people who, who have some balance in this process. In fact, God did bless us with this creation. But he also said, take care of it. What would that mean if we were temperate in our use of the resources here? So what I'm saying is that the hard work... Oh, let me just quote this. I think it's one of the most eloquent statements the Adventist church has ever put out. You can find it on the website, Adventist.org. It's about environment. You look on the left under uh, 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 statements guidelines and other documents and so on. One of the statements is about caring for the environment. Wonderfully eloquent. Listen to this. Seventh-day Adventists advocate a simple, wholesome lifestyle where people do not step on the treadmill of unbridled consumerism, goods-getting, and production of waste. We call for respect of creation, restraint in the use of the world's resources, reevaluation of one's needs, and reaffirmation of the dignity of created life. That's rich. 
That's rich, is it not? Um, but do we? This is part of the frustration. Or are we just sucked into the massive consumer-oriented, buy-it-all, throw-it-all lifestyle? And sometimes I think I, I know, I need to be more temperate in the process. Well, moving right along, peaceable, being people of peace in a world that wants us to fight. Did my tone change just then? I feel as though I have a nice voice now. (laughs) Being people of peace in a world that wants us to fight, right? Peaceable, peaceable. Um, I'm writing an an article right now. I do bioethics, clinical ethics at Loma Linda. I'm writing an article for the Journal of Clinical Ethics that focuses uh, in the clinical interaction for physicians. I'm trying to help physicians understand that some people who come to their clinic still want to use corporal punishment. They see the results of this corporal punishment hitting with hand or something else, hitting the child. They see the results on the child, and guess what they perceive? Child abuse, right? And we'll quickly tell them, no, 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 it's not child abuse. Spare the rod, spoil the child, right? I'm here to say we should stop. We should stop. There are better ways to teach children. Now, I told you I was stepping on feet, my own feet included. I imagine myself when I was, when I was uh, disciplining my children with Christ on my edge. Would he be urging me on? Hit him again. He needs to learn. Or would Christ be saying, Mark, you're a little out of control here. Maybe you should step back and find a better way to do this. I know for parents it's incredibly difficult, and mine, uh, praise God, managed to survive me for the most part. Just quickly, when Tyler was crawling, there was a plant across the room. I'm on the couch. He heads for the plant. I say, no, no, Tyler. No, no. He looks at me. He looks at the plant. He goes for the plant. Right? I said, no, no. He gets up. He situates himself there, puts himself on his butt, looks at the plant, looks at me. I say, no, no, Tyler, don't touch. Of course, he reaches out. I went over and I spanked his hand, right? Thirteen times I spanked his hand. It doesn't work very well, right? Right? It's easy for me, again, because I'm done with that element, that part of, of raising kids. But I just am more and more convicted, and was through that time, and as I emerged, it's not a good way to do it. Letting ourselves be open to God, choosing to decide to follow his leading, and then allowing him to shape our character into being people of peace. That's the hard work of salvation. I got an email from my mother recently. Um, She was uh, a bit disturbed about it. Uh, She wanted to get my opinions on it. Um, How am I doing? Is it 20 minutes yet? 
I'll try to be quick here in the end. Um, Mom had an email from a Christian who had written about a Muslim. This Christian had talked to a Muslim imam and had determined that uh, if, uh, well, that all Muslims, in order to be faithful to Islam, had to kill Christians, any unbeliever, at any moment that they had the opportunity to. Okay? That was the assertion of the Christian writing, writing the, uh, the email. Anybody get that email? Yeah. Um, I, I was a little harsh on my mother. <laughs> uh, it just seems an incredibly absurd notion. How many Muslims are there in the world? About a billion. Do you think by now it would have worked itself out so that a few hundred million Christians had been killed by them? Now, please, everybody knows it's an incredibly violent situation we're in right now. But this sort of stuff only adds to it. It's a ridiculous assertion. Every faithful Muslim is required to kill a non-believer? Please, don't pass on stuff like that. Delete it. Put it in a junk pile. Don't repeat it. Be people, peculiar people of peace in a world that wants to make us fight. There are books on the market right now, a lot of books by atheists who are really critical of religions, and in particular Christianity in this country. One of them here, God is not great. Have you seen this on the bestseller list? God is not great. The subtitle, How Religion Poisons Everything. It's an incisive book full of facts and details about how religion has been the problem in many uh, situations in the world. Another of the books on the market by Sam Harris. Now, Sam Harris wrote a book called The End of Faith, in which he attacks religion and Christianity. And then he decided to write a follow-up called A Letter Letter to a Christian Nation. I want to just read what he says here in the introduction. Because, again, what's the point? Opening ourselves to God's Spirit working in us, I think, will push us in the direction of being peaceable people in a world that wants us to fight. That's peculiar. He says this, since the publication of my first book, The End of Faith, thousands of people have written to me telling me I am wrong not to believe in God. The most hostile of these communications have come from Christians. This is ironic as Christians generally imagine that no faith imparts the virtues of love and forgiveness more effectively than their own. The truth is that many who claim to be transformed by Christ's love are deeply, even murderously, intolerant of criticism. While we may want to ascribe this to human nature, it is clear that such hatred draws considerable support from the Bible. How do I know this? The most disturbed of my correspondents always cite chapter and verse. What is the perception in the world of of, uh, Christians? Are we a, a, a positive force moving in the direction of peace? Or are we seen as murderous, as violent? And I would say the latter uh, more than the former. Now, when I uh, finished uh, writing up and getting the 
rough draft. I thought, wow, that's really negative sermon, Mark. Uh, you need to do something to, to lighten and, and, and point some bright lights. Um, my MBA students that I referred to earlier are, are wonderful. Yes, they're, they're bright and they're motivated and they, they want to make a lot of money, but they do some incredible things on mission trips, uh, going out and caring for neighborhoods and, uh, and people overseas. You know, Loma Linda has a reputation in the rest of Adventism as being sort of out there, sort of off the edge, uh, not caring about missions anymore, right? Uh, we have tons of bright lights at Loma Linda, people who are going out routinely uh, focused on missionary endeavors, right? Uh, Dean Hadley at the School of Medicine was recently back at Andrews Seminary talking to the seminary students, trying to encourage them to apply to medical school because he wants people that have a ministry background. Chemistry is not the only thing important for medical school, right? And after the presentation, uh, the questions started to come back to him about Loma Linda and the fact that, that you guys have lost it. Right? You don't care about missions. You don't care about Adventism. You don't care about, you don't care about, you don't care about. And the students were astounded to hear the things that our students do routinely. They just don't hear those good stories. Those are fabulous stories. And uh, in the midst of this Southern California society that pushes us to be excessive, that pushes us to be violent, that pushes us to be self-centered, we have plenty of bright lights. Plenty of bright lights. The text pushes me, however, to be always moving forward. Ellen White said that this part of salvation, that is sanctification, is a work of a lifetime. It has been so far for me. Uh, I'll guess that it, that it is for you. What is the effect of God's salvation in your personal lives, your character? Right? Not even God can make you into a loving person. Linger with that for just a minute. God can't make you into a compassionate, peaceable, loving, temperate person. He can't do it unless you open yourself to his leading, to his presence. The good news is that he says clearly, once you've done that, it's me in you to to help you decide again and to help you do that which is loving.